I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the last two chapters of the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapters 26 and 27. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. In chapter 26, we begin with the blessings of obeying God. Verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season, the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell on your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably, and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest, and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, and be your God, and you shall be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. Well, as we come to the conclusion of Leviticus, God very clearly establishes the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. It's a pretty simple proposition. In these first 13 verses, Israel's told what they can expect if they obey God. So, here's the proposition. Israel must do the following. No idols or any kind of religious image in verse 1. Keep the Sabbaths in verse 2. And keep the statutes and commandments in verse 3. Now, if they'll do that, then here's what we're told. God will do the following. He'll give rain in due season. He'll cause the land and trees to yield well. He'll keep the agricultural calendar consistent. He'll keep them living in peace. He'll cause their enemies to flee from them. He'll make them fruitful and multiply them. He'll establish his covenant with them. He'll make their food last between harvests. He'll make his dwelling among them. And he will maintain a relationship with them. You'll notice, however, that eternal life is not one of the provisions in this list. Why not? Well, it's vital to understand the law of Moses in its proper context. The law of Moses provided the standard principles of obedience necessary for Israel to receive national blessings from God. The law of Moses was never intended to be a means of providing the conditions for individual spiritual fitness before God. That fitness before God, individual fitness, was clearly established all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. 
In speaking of Abraham, that verse says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Individual salvation has always been an issue of faith, then and now. The law of Moses governed the conduct of the nation of Israel, much like the Constitution of the United States does for its citizens today. The use of the law of Moses to establish individual righteousness is an extra-scriptural use of the law that demonstrates man's attempt to forsake faith in lieu of works. So, that being said, what if Israel does not obey God? Well, there's your answer in verses 14 through 39. Verse 14, But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins, and I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy." When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters." I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths, as long as it lies desolate, and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest, for the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts and the lands of their enemies, 
The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as it were before a sword, when no one pursues, and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in their fathers' iniquities, which are with them. They shall waste away. Well, with all the blessings in verses 1 through 13, why wouldn't Israel just obey God? What a life! I mean, it's particularly puzzling when we see the verses that follow the curses for disobedience. So what will happen to Israel if they refuse and disobey God? Well, if Israel rebels and, and does the following, not listen to God, not keep his commandments, reject God's decrees, abhor God's laws, and violate God's covenant with them, then here's what we're told in verses 16 and 17 that God will do. He'll bring terror and diseases upon them. He'll let their enemies get their planted seed, and he'll deliver them to their enemies. Well, and if that doesn't bring Israel back then here's what God will do in verses 18 through 20. He'll punish them seven times over for their sins, give them bad ground and bad weather, and take the yield away from their crops. But what if that doesn't work? I mean, what if that still doesn't do it? Then here's what God will do, as we're told in verses 21 and 22. Multiply their afflictions seven times over, send wild animals to kill their children and cattle. But what if by some stretch of the imagination, Israel is still hostile toward God? Well, then here's what he'll do. He'll afflict them, we're told in verses 24 through 26. He'll afflict them another seven times over, send enemies with the sword to afflict them, send plagues on them when they head for their cities in retreat, facilitate their capture by their enemies, and cut off their food supply. Wow. But... What if Israel's hostility toward God continues even in the face of that? Well, here's what we're told in verses 28 to 33. God will display hostility toward them and punish them another seven times over and turn them over to cannibalism in verse 29, which, by the way, happened in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, and it's again recorded in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 10, which alludes to it. God will destroy their pagan altars and pile their dead bodies on those altars. He'll destroy their cities and destroy their sanctuaries and reject their offerings and lay waste their land and then scatter them among the nations. But what about the people who are left in the land? Well, verses 36 through 39 say this. God will cause them to live in constant fear, cause them to stumble over one another in confusion, and cause them to waste away before their enemies. Now, it's impossible to legitimately say that God didn't warn Israel. I mean, he can't be any clearer than, than what he said here in Leviticus chapter 26. It's itemized. Israel, the northern kingdom, after the split following Solomon's reign, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrians in 721 B.C. That's recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17. The southern kingdom lasted longer. Jerusalem finally fell completely to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. 
and that's recorded in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. And by the way, these negatives, they'd all come to pass. Now, the whole nation, having been warned by God right here in Leviticus 26, it had met its demise because they violated these very components of their covenant with God. So, here's the big question. Will God just forget Israel at this point? Well, Leviticus 26, verses 40 through 46, answer just that question. Verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses." Well, we see here from verse 35 that along with everything else, they'll neglect to observe the Sabbath years mandated in Leviticus chapter 25. It's hard to believe, but Israel chose to disobey God rather than to obey. I mean, unbelievable. Notice in the remaining verses of the chapter that God tells them that through all of their disobedience and consequences, God will still remember them after they repent. These verses characterize what, in fact, would happen to Israel in their disobedience and fall to the Assyrians in 721 B.C. for the northern kingdom and the fall of the southern kingdom to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And, by the way, their subsequent return to their land from their exile after 70 years. That's just as Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 25 and again in Jeremiah chapter 29. In chapter 27, the last chapter of the book of Leviticus, we have a whole chapter on the importance of a vow. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if from 5 years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for male shall be 20 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to 5 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 5 shekels of silver, and for a female, your valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male... Then your valuation shall be fifteen shekels, and for a female, ten shekels. But if he's too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him. According to the ability of him who vowed, the priest shall value him. 
If it is an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. If it is an unclean animal which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest. And the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. If he who dedicated it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at fifty shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession... Then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to the one who owned the land as a possession. And all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, twenty giras to the shekel. But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord." No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock, or of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Okay, this chapter is all about making voluntary vows to God. These vows were taken very seriously. 
When someone petitioned God by making such a vow, it was considered a permanent transaction, no turning back. Chapter 27 does, however, place monetary values upon such vows. Once made, these vows were redeemable by the values given in this chapter. Some were made with the intention of monetary redemption at the time of their commitment. Now, these vows fall into four categories. We see the category of persons in verses 2 through 8, animals, verses 9 through 13, houses in verses 14 and 15, and fields in verses 16 to 25. Verses 26 through 34 provide some addendum to the valuations for vows. You'll notice that some things cannot be given as a vow because they belong to God anyway. We find a warning regarding vows in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 through 23. Here's what those verses say. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Notice what Solomon said about these voluntary vows in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. He says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Samuel, by the way, was Hannah's vow to God in 1 Samuel chapter 1 prior to her conception. She subsequently presented him to the high priest for service to God. Oh, and who can forget Jephthah's foolish, unscriptural vow in Judges chapter 11? You'll notice that offering a human as a burnt offering was not part of the regulations of Leviticus chapter 27. It was clearly a violation of the law of Moses, what Jephthah did. However, while completely contrary to God's law, what he did, it does show us how seriously the Hebrews took their vows. Numbers chapter 30 also deals with the subject of vows. Now, there's an exception made regarding the use of land for a vow as the year of Jubilee approaches in verses 16 to 25. According to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 13 to 34, land that year reverted back to its original tribal owner upon entry into Canaan. If that land had been purchased by another and used as a vow it still reverted back to the original tribal owner according to verses 22 to 24. However, if it had been the tribal owner of the land who dedicated it to the Lord as a vow, then it didn't revert back in the year of Jubilee. It, at that point, became the permanent possession of the priest. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.